Our scripture passage from this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Hear the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, taken out of context and even in context, I think those are some of the most audacious words in Scripture. Because the longer we live, the more each and every one of us knows the intimate sting of death, right? The sting of an empty chair at the dinner table that was once occupied by a loved one. The silence of a phone call that can never be made. The haunting, even now within technology, the haunting Facebook page of a friend who's passed that hasn't been taken down. You know, there's a new Netflix series, um, original series, called Chef's Table um, that gives you a rare glimpse into the lives of some of our, our world's culinary geniuses of our time. And in a really rare opportunity, celebrated chef, experienced farmer, and food industry revolutionary, Dan Barber. He gives us this refreshing and transparent look of his own wrestlings on how the shadow of death just is cast upon every aspect of his work and life, everything he longs for, and he's left wanting. Let's watch together. In our life, one attempt to fill a void after another I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but I'm trying hard. There's something so honest about what he says, and yet heartbreaking. And maybe as you heard him talk about that, there was something resonating even within your own spirit. This running, this chasing after filling a void. How long can you keep that up? How long can you keep that up? Well, the good news that we hear from Scripture and that you need to hear this morning is you don't have to, not if you don't want to. You see, at the core of the Christian faith, we hear God's invitation to a bold confidence to stare the void of death in the face and say, you will not win in the end. You will not win in the end. How? Because God came in Jesus and in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection, we can say with confidence, the end is only the beginning. 
The end is only the beginning. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, okay, it's just like religious people to run to fables and myths to find their security. When are you going to face the facts, bro? Well, here's the deal. Modern people aren't so special as to be the first people in history to question any sort of life after death or even the very resurrection of Jesus. We have a whole host a whole host of folks in this church in Corinth in the first century who have their questions, they have their doubts about life after death, the very resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have, the, have to have the articulation of the scientific method to know that dead people stay dead. And so they come with their questions. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Is there any hope for me in anything after death? And the answer of the church throughout history has not been, well, just believe already. Instead, it has been, weigh the evidence. Weigh the evidence, pointing to verifiable eyewitness accounts of those who saw, experienced, and even touched the resurrected Jesus. You see, when we come to this early church in Corinth, and they come with their questions and doubts, the apostle Paul writes back to them and says, Hey, remember, Jesus showed up to hundreds of people who touched him, who saw him. And some of them are still alive in the first century. So why don't you go and talk with them, write them letters, visit with them, do your fact checking. And then Paul says, and Jesus also showed up to me. Which is kind of a big deal because Paul was sort of like the ISIS of the first century. He loved to imprison and he sought to kill Christians. And one day he's on a road trip to go and harass some more Christians and the resurrected Jesus shows up. And the guy who is opposed to the movement of Jesus joins and becomes one of the greatest proponents of Christianity. The only plausible explanation I can think of Paul's life and his eventual death for Christianity is that he really did see who he said he saw, the resurrected Jesus. And as followers of the resurrected Jesus... We don't have to be afraid of death as the end because the end is only the beginning. Now, if you've been following along with us as we've been walking through this letter, 1 Corinthians, you're probably wondering, how on earth did we end up at the end of chapter 15? Well, let me recap, okay? We covered the end of chapter 14 when we were in chapter 11, talking about head coverings. Not a topic we need to return to this morning. Also, on Easter... On Easter, we covered the first half of chapter 15. Chapter 15 as a whole is all about resurrection. The first half is about the validity of Jesus' resurrection. The second half, where we are this morning, is all about our resurrections. You see, Jesus' resurrection and our hope and faith in a coming resurrection are intimately connected. If Jesus didn't rise again, if he did not defeat the void of death, And we're hopeless. And our greatest gift could be death in the end, which you find many times in various philosophical frameworks of atheism as suicide is a great escape. But if he is alive, if Jesus is alive, it changes everything. The end is only the beginning. And here are three reasons why. Now, the first is maybe the most elaborate of reasons why the end is just the beginning. You see, there's a day coming that Paul talks about that Scripture 
highlights that Jesus reveals a day that is coming when we will be given a new beginning. We will be given a new beginning. Look with me at what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 50. It's on page 962 if you're using one of our community Bibles. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for the per- this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This language of flesh and blood doesn't mean that we will no longer be physical, but it's a technical term for the brokenness of our world. Now, I know for some of us, when we hear things about life after death, it doesn't sound like this imperishable bliss, but much more like this immortal boredom. <laughs> you know, I think uh, Farside says it best, wish I'd brought a magazine, okay? Um, but Paul, what's so wonderful here is he paints a very different picture of life after death. And for him, it all revolves around what God has in store with these things, our bodies, okay? You see, the church in Corinth in the first century had poor body image. Um, we saw and got a taste of this back in chapter 6, where time and again, they, when they looked in the mirror, what they saw were temporary tools to gain pleasure that they'd one day just discard forever. But not only that, as they looked to the future and this new beginning that God had in store for his people, they saw their existence as a disembodied soul for eternity. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, no wonder so many think that eternity is going to be boring. Think of your most exciting memories, your most joyful times. They engaged your body, didn't they? And what we find is that when God creates and recreates and renews the world, He creates, recreates, and renews bodies for us to exist in this new world. And it's not going to be a body that's less solid, but more so. Not a body that's less real, but more so. I want you to think back. Think about those most exhilarating moments and how your body and the goose pimples you get on your skin and the exhilaration you feel. We we were created to be embodied beings for eternity. I remember when I was a butler in Chicago, um, and the lady of the house, Miss Marcia, asked me a question. She said, you know, when when we get back, you know, she was really sweet. She always came with these interesting questions. When we we rise again, are we going to be like amphibians? You know, are we going to have webbed toes? And I said, Marcia, where on earth do you get that from? And she's like, well, I don't know, you know. Will we be even able to recognize one another? Will I recognize myself? Will I be myself? And it's a good question. What will it be like when we're resurrected? And Paul, Paul here in our passage, he gives us a glimpse. And he uses what we see in creation now to point to what new creation will be like. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a little bit higher up in verse 37. It's hard to believe But actually, the seed of this plant and the plant itself are molecularly the same organism. And yet, outwardly, visibly, they're drastically different. And that's what Paul is saying. He's like, look at the bodies of those around you. 
What those are are pre-resurrection seeds that one day God will blossom into something outrageously beautiful. That's what we have to look forward. And we can't even imagine how glorious these bodies will be. And so he teases out this seed and plant metaphor when we look down to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown? So think of a farmer sowing his seed here. What is sown is perishable. What is raised? Think of a plant growing, raising up. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now, to be clear, spiritual, once again, does not mean immaterial. Um, What you're seeing here is the emphasis of what's empowering the physical. I heard someone say this, and it really helped clarify it for me. Think of two different boats, a sailboat and a steamboat. They're both physical vessels that float across the water. The question is, what is empowering them to cross the water? It's about, the emphasis is about what is empowering the physical, not whether one will be physical and whether one will not be physical. And if you were, this is where at least I was, you may be thinking, where does Paul get this? What are his primary sources? You know, if we're going to do good research here and really dig into where Paul is getting this. Two places. Here is two primary sources. What God has said already in Scripture and two, what God has revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. What God has already said in Scripture past and what he has revealed in the resurrected Jesus. You see, as a thoughtful Jewish scholar in the first century, Paul knew his Bible. And if you go back to the beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures in Genesis chapter 2, we hear God creating the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the earth, and then he breathes his life force into the man to create him an existing and living organism. And in a very real sense, because Adam is the first of all of humanity, whatever he does... Same way as parents and grandparents and the decisions our ancestors have made continue to impact us. Whatever Adam decides to do in those key moments will impact all of his offspring, which happens to be all of humanity, (laughs) from there on after. So when we get to Genesis 3 and we hear how Adam and Eve rebel against God, the source of their life, the one who breathed very life into them, who brought what was common dust into human organisms. And they experience the curse of death. If they want nothing to do with the source of life, then they can never know everlasting life. And as the offspring of Adam, every human being has engaged in the rebellion against the source of life, our creator. And so we've all felt the sting of death. To dust, to dust, right? We sing this or say this at funerals. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But God has always, 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 always had a plan. (laughs) And God would send his son from heaven to be a new representative, a second Adam of sorts, who would now live the perfect life that the first Adam never lived. And now he would take that curse of death upon himself on the cross the ultimate void every human being wrestles with, and then he would rise again bodily to show that the curse really has been broken all the way down to our bones. And the result 
is a possible new humanity with everyone who surrenders their rebellion against God and now follows Jesus, the Lord and Savior, having the hope of everlasting embodied life. When Paul was on the road to Damascus, he saw this second Adam in all of his glory, and he also saw each and every one of our destiny, what it will be like to be resurrected men and women of God. Listen to his words in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Christ. When the life of God resides in resurrected humanity, all those who have submitted to Jesus Christ, no longer un- it's now unencumbered by sin, Just like the resurrected Jesus, our bodies will not be marred with the perishable realities of entropy, but the imperishable, eternal flourishing, which we can't even fathom, right? Because when we look at our lives, we we reach our physical peak at age 20, which I think most of us have passed, age 20, and then it's 60 years of entropy thereafter, right? Here we go. (laughs) The long ride downhill. Um, Welcome to church. what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. What is sown in weakness, we all know weakness, physically, emotionally, relationally, will be raised in power. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. And I want you to imagine with me for a moment. I think our minds can quickly jump to Those who are lame who will finally get to walk. And that is beautiful. But there's even something more. Because those who think they can walk freely now in our resurrected bodies will have a whole new concept of our bodies working in synergy with one another and the created world around us will finally know what it means to really walk freely. Those who who are encumbered with asthma will finally be able to breathe Freely, and that'll be phenomenal. But those who think they can breathe freely now will breathe in the unfiltered, unstained air with a greater capacity of our lungs. Can you even imagine? We can't even capture a glimpse of this world, a perfect world in which we're perfectly made for it, where sin and death are no more. But that's not our story today, is it? (laughs) that's definitely not our story and we're all aching every one of us in one way shape or form aches for that day when will it be and Jesus promises that when he returns the new beginning will begin to take shape here's the deal if God came to humanity lived among us died our death and then rose again Not only do I believe that God has the capacity to come back, but he has the character to follow through on his promises to return and make us new, finally and fully. But in the time between, between what he's already begun in in us and what he will finish, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are you ready for the new beginning? Are you ready for the new beginning. You see, the grand mystery as to how all this pans out is if we want to be a part of the new beginning in the future, we need to surrender to Jesus today. 
If you want to be a part of God's grand new beginning in the future, you have to surrender to Jesus today like the seed. We must die to ourselves and allow God to do his magnificent work. And hear me this morning. You don't lose yourself in the process. Actually, you find all the more fully who God's designed you to be as you blossom into the person he's created you to be. And we get to look forward as that just being a foretaste of what he'll do in eternity. Are you ready for the new beginning? Are you ready for the new beginning? And if you think that sounds good, you should hear what else Paul has to say next. And I'm not going to leave you in mystery, so let's walk into it together. The second reason... The second reason the end is only the beginning is because there's a day coming when we will see the end of death. We will see the end of death. The one problem that touches every culture, every culture, the one issue that every human being knows, either relationally and eventually very intimately, the greatest foe of humanity is death. And for us to even begin to fathom how death comes to an end, we need to understand what energizes and powers death, yes? What energizes, what gives death its life-taking power is one word. It's a churchy word, very thorough word, very important word, sin. Rebellion against God all the way back in the garden that consistently is the issue within humanity today. Sin is like the poison we drink. A little sip here, a little sip there. Some of us hide it in a flask in our coats. Others of us chug it in broad daylight on the weekend. Some of us are casual drinkers of it. But if you've had one drop of sin, it's terminal, and it kills you from the inside out. As for the law, those thou shalt nots, maybe you've heard of them, maybe you haven't. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet. Those won't change us. And they won't save us. Actually, Paul says here in our letter that they go to reveal how deep this poison has sunk down into our souls, how far the rebellion has gone. It's kind of like the warning labels on the poison. Keep out of reach of children. Don't drink. Don't ingest. Caution. Warning. And we throw caution to the wind. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Or maybe more commonly, this book is too old to be relevant. So we twist the cap and throw back another swig. And the poison dives deeper, slowly making our bodies more and more numb till we feel the silence of death. And if that's where death gets its power, how does death die? How does death come to an end? Basically, that means the victory can't come from us because we're all sin addicts who avoid and just ignore the warning labels. We actually feed death. We don't defeat death. But thanks be to God. He had a divine intervention in our addiction. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death. All the poison was sucked into him on the cross. And in his death and resurrection proves that death has been defeated. Death is swallowed up in victory. You know, this word swallowed in the original Greek is really violent. <laughs> it means to devour, to drown, to bring to a complete cessation of a state, to bring to an end, the end 
of death. I heard someone say it's kind of like in Jurassic Park when the T-Rex comes and swallows the goat, you know. And this isn't something that's new on God's radar. It's always been a part of God's plan. All the way back in Genesis 3, he makes a promise to humanity, to the woman, that one in your offspring will actually crush the head of the serpent who brought deception and brought death to humanity. And this message echoes throughout the whole of God's revelation to his people. And we hear this resound exceedingly loud in the passage that was read earlier by Sarah from Isaiah chapter 25. And he's ultimately pointing to Jesus and what Jesus will still do. Isaiah 25, beginning in verse 6 through verse 9. Once again, page 586 in our community text. On this mountain... The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, tasty. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away Tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And when you get to the New Testament, this message continues to resound over and over and over again. And the Apostle John gets a glimpse of what is to come. And in Revelation 21, you hear almost strikingly similar language echoing again. 21, beginning in verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will, that sounds a lot like Isaiah 25, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. We will be given a new beginning and we will see the end of death. How is this possible? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, not through us, but through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is him and what God has done through Jesus that death will be annihilated. Just Jesus, Jess, it's, what, it's our first name basis, Jesus and I, Jess, I guess. Jesus brings an end to death. He wins the battle. He swallows up the poison and brings a defeat to death. And one day he will enact an annihilation of cancer, of Parkinson's, of MS, of IBS, of greed, of lust, of abuse, of selfishness, of sin. All of it being swallowed up, never to show its face again. And you know what that means? We can face the most atrocious forms of death with courage. With courage. Do you face death with courage? Do you face death with courage? You know what's a good litmus test? It's how we grieve as the people of God. When you face death with courage, it's not that you respond in numbness because we understand how awful death is. God came to die to defeat death. 
That's how serious sin and death is. And it should break our hearts, but it should never crush us. Because we have the hope and the knowledge that in the end, that is only the beginning. In the end, that is only the beginning. We know who's in charge. We know what's been promised. Death will not have the last word. You know, as human beings, we choose very carefully, when possible, our last words, don't we? Whether they be, I'm sorry, I love you, thank you. And one Christian leader in the 20th century, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, 39-year-old, brilliant, courageous Christian, before he is hung by the Nazi regime, says, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. Do you have that kind of courage? Does that define your life? That even in the face of death, a resilient confidence that the end is only the beginning. Do you face death with courage? And what that does is it changes everything about our lives today. Look what Paul says here at the end of our passage, kind of at a climax. After talking everything about Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, chapter 15, verse 54, therefore, because of all of what I've said, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In other words, because the end is only the beginning, everything you've begun is not in vain. Everything you've begun today is not in vain. That's only possible when you're steadfast, when you don't swerve, when you're immovable, when somebody doesn't knock you off from the gospel, everything he's been telling you about. And he iterates this in chapter 15, verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. First century. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. To me. Don't waver. Hold on to the confidence that you find within the gospel, what God has done in Jesus. Then you can find resilient purpose in all of your vocations, regardless of where God has placed you for mission. Remember what Chef Barber said? Isn't our life one attempt to fill a void after another? I don't know if I'm succeeding or not, but I'm trying hard. Where's all this originate or where will it end? I don't know. And there's this sense of lostness, this reaching out for meaning and purpose in the shadow of death. And that does not have to be our story. It doesn't have to be our story. In the resurrection of Jesus, we are given a confidence that what we do today matters for tomorrow. And I love the way N.T. Wright in his book, Surprised by Hope, teases this out a bit. He says, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. 
What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether as the hymn so mistakenly puts it. They are part of what may call, we may call building for, not building up, but building for God's kingdom. Rough stones that need to be sharpened, seeds that need to be blossomed by God's divine intervention to be sure, but still genuine and lasting contribution in some way, shape, or form towards God's good work and his new beginning. Here at Christ Community, we are passionate to say that the gospel is opposed to any form of earning but never to effort. We still hear God's call and we walk in the good works he has laid before us to do, yes? So let me ask you this morning, are you seeing your life through a forever lens? Are you seeing your life through a forever lens? Not an end point, but an eternal arrow. Are you seeing your life through a forever lens? More than filling a void today, but lasting and genuine contribution for eternity. You see, God's grand plan of redemption and restoration is for all of creation. And we believe here that the primary work of the church is the church at work. Not just Sundays when we gather together, but Monday through Friday, where God has placed you to spend the majority of your time on this planet, in your workplace, the weekends, in your leisure, all of life, Sunday through Saturday. Are you seeing your lives through a forever lens? Everything you've begun isn't in vain because of the resurrection. Someone who lived their life through a forever lens um, is my wife's grandpa, Tom. Grandpa Tom. Poppy, as we affectionately call him. He passed away this March. And he left a legacy in the landscape and the lives of everyone he came in contact with. At 6'4", he was this towering Hungarian of a man who had this warm smile that just captured your heart, even from yards away. And alongside of this warmth, he had the true grit of hardworking hands. He worked in the factories of Cleveland when they were in their heyday. Hard, hardworking man. He was known for his work ethic, his integrity in the workplace, but even more so his passion for Jesus. He just never could get over what Jesus had done for him. He came to Christ later in life. He knew what it meant to live life without Christ, and he couldn't imagine ever going back, and he knew friends who knew what it meant to live without Christ, and his heart broke for them. And one of the stories that continued to percolate up around his funeral was when a new employee came to the factory, and one of the regular employees said, hey, you're going to want to stay away from Tom. He's going to tell you about this guy, Jesus, all right? Well, this new employee, he ignored the, uh, the other employee, and he got to know Tom. He got to know his work ethic. He got to know his integrity. And most of all, he got to know his Jesus. Now, to be sure, Tom never used sharing Jesus as an excuse to slack off at work, okay? But he never missed an opportunity to share about the everlasting hope that is only found in Jesus alone. He wanted so desperately everyone to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And one day, over time, he led that new coworker to Christ in a prayer to receive the hope 
of everlasting joy in Jesus. And that coworker went home and he led his whole family to Jesus. And that story continues to resound within that family of his hard work and his faithful presence. And I can guarantee you, everything he's begun isn't in vain. I'm confident he will know the new beginning. I'm confident he will see the end of death because everything he's begun isn't in vain. And that story, that can be true of each one of us in the vocations in which God has placed you. Faithful work and faithful presence for the glory of God and the furtherance of his gospel. We don't have to go chasing one void after another, but we can rest in the victory of Jesus. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And together as a church, we stand as we have already said and we say, for Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us hints of what is to come that can only seek to just blow our imaginations. <laughs> thank you for your grace that you sought us while we were still sinners. That's when you died for us. That in Jesus, we can find a new identity a new humanity even now, and victory even now as we look towards the great victory to the end of death, to a whole new restored and flourishing humanity. And may that now embolden us in everything we do in our workspace and in our relationships, our families and our communities. For everything we do now is not done in vain, but is a part of your grand purpose of redemption. May we hold that with great weight and joy and responsibility.